Well, Father in heaven, we thank you that you have sent your son so that rather than foolishly trying to run from our sin and run from our judgment to ourselves or to false saviors, you have given us your son, yourself, so that we can run to you and hide ourselves in you. So Lord, as we open your word now and have it proclaimed, Lord, I pray that as our sin is exposed and our guilt and the damnation and hell that we deserve, Lord, rather than running foolishly to false saviors, that we would run to Christ and hide ourselves in him. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. If you have your Bibles, I want to ask you to turn to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. So it's good to sort of orient ourselves where we're at when we're starting to, uh, when, when we're preaching, when we're even opening the word of God for ourselves on our own. It's good to sort of orient ourselves. Where are we at? What just happened? Where are we? And so in the book of Isaiah, the first five chapters we saw, they, they serve as a bit of an introduction or a, uh, a preface to the book, or even maybe the back cover, the summary of the book. And then we've got Isaiah six through eight, and that's focused on Jerusalem. It's focused on the current son of David. Well, really the descendant of David, because David reigned a few hundred years earlier. Uh, so the son of David at that time, his name was King Ahaz, ruled over uh, God's people from Jerusalem. He's on the throne of David. His name is Ahaz. In Jerusalem is the temple of the, the living God. And we re- remember that this son of David, Ahaz, he's under a big threat. He's got two enemy nations that come up against him. One is Syria or the Arameans or Aram is, is coming against him. And they've joined forces with Israel. Well, that doesn't sound right to you, does it? Right? Why is Why is Jerusalem under attack by Israel? Well, that's because uh, quite a long time before that, uh, the 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel, they rebelled against the son of David. And they formed their own nation up in the north against Jerusalem, against the son of David, against the house of David, against the temple of God even. And they called themselves Israel. And so God sent a word to Ahaz, son of David. Don't be afraid of these enemies. I will destroy them. And then we have uh, Isaiah 9, the beginning of Isaiah 9. We have this sweet prophecy of a coming Messiah, a son being born to David and therefore to all of Israel. A son who would, God would judge sin, but also on his shoulders would be placed the government, the responsibility to rule and save God's people. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. We just read that. Now we have Isaiah is going to turn his attention northward. He had just talked about how God is going to destroy this enemy army called Israel. This rebellious group of people who are against the temple of God, against the son of David. He just said that he's going to rescue Judah from these people. And now he turns his attention to them. And the next couple of chapters are actually addressed to Israel, the enemy nation of the son of David. And and it's an astonishing mercy that God addresses them. And he gives them very similar warnings that he gave to Judah. Very similar warnings he gave to Jerusalem. Now, 
I want us to notice something. I want to point something out in this that I think would be helpful. Because we got this massive book. Isaiah has 66 chapters. A big book. And sometimes these things are pretty daunting. Now, what you want to look for is maybe patterns or things that can sort of help you identify what is the point. So I want us to see that this is actually a song, a song of warning, and it's a song in four stanzas. And each of these stanzas, you can see this with me, verse 12, verse 17, verse 21, and then chapter 10, verse 4, they all end in the same refrain. Did you notice this? or you haven't read it yet, but I I hope you can notice this. You can see this as I point them out. 12, 17, 21, and 10, verse 4. All them end in the same refrain. What is that? For all this, his, God's, for all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is outstretched still. So, very helpful when you see that. You sort of see what's the point. What does the author want you to know? So, what does that repetition tell you? That repetition tells you that Israel, even though they were experiencing God's discipline, they should know that God has been holding back his wrath. This is judgment they are receiving, but it is not full strength. It's mixed with patience. But the judgments and discipline, these ones are meant to warn them of a coming judgment that will not be mixed with patience. It will not be cut with water. It will be a full strength drink of God's wrath. And the point is that there's no escaping this judgment. It's definitely happening. But individual Israelites can run to God and be saved. This is happening. And the point of this is to run not away from God, but to run to him. So our first point is this, this first stanza is this, God's adopted children will respond to his fatherly discipline. God's adopted children will respond to his fatherly discipline. Hopefully you can see this with me in the first stanza, which is 8 to 12. Read with me. Isaiah 9, 8 through 12. The Lord has sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel. And all the people will know, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, Samaria, who will say in pride and in arrogance of heart, The bricks have fallen, but we will build with dress stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. But the Lord raises the adversaries of resin against him and stirs up his enemies. The Syrians on the east and the Philistines on the west devour Israel with open mouth. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. Thus far God's word. This stanza in the poem is pressing the point that you are a fool to think that you can handle God's discipline or judgment. You cannot. You cannot handle God's discipline. God had disciplined Israel against, for their rebellion against him. Their sin had come with absolutely terrible results. Now, not, everything, not, not every bad thing that happens is a sign that God is punishing you. The book of Job yells that point very loud from the mountaintop. All suffering is because we live in a sinful world, but not all suffering is because of your sin. In fact, for you to know that it is, you'd have to have a prophet there who tells you. And what do we have here? We have a prophet telling them, your suffering is because of your sin. 
unless there's a prophet there who can do miracles and who's never made a mistake, even the kind of miracles that their opponents can't deny, then you cannot say that somebody's suffering is because of their sin. But here we have prophets. We've got Isaiah and Amos, Elijah and Elisha. These men saying, yes, this punish, this hardship is actually God's punishment for your sin. And so these judgments broke them. Man, these judgments broke them. They were rebuked by God. We saw this by saying, when it says, the bricks have fallen. The sycamores have been cut down. This had massive effects on them. They were under the punishment of God. But these people, I wonder if you notice how they're, how they're taking it. They're, they're acting as if they could just take it on the chin. That's all you got, God? We can handle the wrath of God. Just, it's just going to make us stronger. What don't kill you makes you stronger. And so they're like, we can do this. We lost brick-built buildings. We're just going to rebuild with stone buildings. We want to replace them anyways. God knocked down all the sycamore wood, the sycamore trees. We'll replace them with a more costly wood, cedar. We like it better anyways. Now, this is a very common arrogance. We see in the world, and we also see it in our own hearts. Church. A nonchalant attitude about the judgment of God. Arrogance that we can just handle it. We see God's mercy and God's patience, and we, we take it for weakness. This is all God can do? Oh, I, I keep sinning and nothing happens? Oh, must mean that I can handle it. But by that refrain, what Isaiah is saying, God has in mercy withheld his wrath. He has withheld his judgments on a sinful world. He holds back wrath until the day of judgment when the Lord returns and he judges the living and the dead. But what you see in scripture is that sometimes that future judgment, the judgment of the day of the Lord or the return of the Messiah, when, when he comes to judge the living and the dead, that future judgment of hell, sometimes you see that it breaks into the present. Now, if you go through the, the storyline of history of, of, uh, of the, the scriptures, you can see that this comes, this breaks through this judgment, the future judgment of God, his wrath towards sin. You can see it, it, it breaks through sometimes in the present. We see this with the flood. We see this with the Tower of Babel. We see this with Sodom and Gomorrah. We see this with the Exodus, with the, 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 the plagues raining down on Egypt. We see this with the judgment of, of Canaan at the hands of Joshua, where they come and they wipe out Canaan. We see this with the, the judgments that God brought on the people during the time of the judges, when he would bring enemy nations in to punish them. And we see this with these coming judgments that Isaiah is prophesying about the exile, the exile that Israel will experience, where they will be taken away from their land the future judgment of God, the future wrath of God, it breaks into the present. And that is not God saying, this is, this is all I've got. This is God warning you about the coming judgments. It is coming. It is coming. It's coming at my hands. You will not be able to handle, handle it. You will not so turn while you still have time. And one of the reasons he did this is these judgments exposed who was his actual child and who was not. When God brought judgments to Israel, it exposed 
who in Israel was his child and who was not. Do you remember in the, the days of Elijah, not the song, but in the, in the days of Elijah, he despaired that he was the only one in Israel who was left. That all these judgments had revealed that not a single one of them were actually God's kids. And what did the Lord reveal to him? Oh, Elijah, I have kept for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. These are mine. And these judgments showed who were mine and who were not. Now, the difference between those people and the other people is not that they didn't deserve punishment. They They were sinners just like those who didn't. The difference is that when discipline came, instead of running away from God, they ran to him. Rather than thinking, this is all you got, God? They thought, oh God, you are being merciful. Please save me. And God was pleased to save these people. Experiencing measured discipline from God is not proof that you can handle God. Brothers and sisters, unbelieving guests, Everything that happens in your life is under the sovereign hand of God. It is all predestined by God. It is all his work in your life. It is his choices taking effect in your life. That doesn't mean that every pleasant thing is a reward and every bitter thing is a punishment. That's not what it means. But it means that they were all intentionally chosen by God to shape you. And if you belong to him, it means they were intentionally chosen by him to discipline you, to, to, be your, to, to, to fatherly care for you and shape you, and to make sure you don't go off running into idols. Every single bit of this is God's discipline, good and bad. In Hebrews, te- Hebrews 12, it tells us that God disciplines those whom he loves, and it proves that they are his kids, and he is their father. That discipline can come with wonderful things. It can come with painful things. It can come with wonderful things, and then the Holy Spirit uses that to cut you to the heart. A pain that is worse than physical pain, where you realize, how wicked am I that I would sin against such a good God? And the Spirit of God brings you to him and brings you to repentance. It also comes with difficult things. God disciplines and shapes and leads as a father those whom he loves. God is just getting you ready for the final judgment and making sure that you will stand through it because you ran to him. Now, the prosperity preachers tell you that God's discipline in your life hardships are to make you stronger, to make you a stronger person. Bad things may happen to you, but only to prepare you to receive better things, right? You lost this job, but that's just because you're getting a new one, a better one. Yes, this is a time of trial and and testing, but be of good courage. Abundance is coming. Your breakthrough is coming. God is just getting you ready for greatness and abundance. Now, doesn't that sound a lot like the false preachers that Isaiah was talking about here? The bricks have fallen, but we'll build with dress stones. The, 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 the sycamores have fallen, but we've got cedars on the horizon. This is not what God is doing. 
That's not what it means that he disciplines us and he uses those things to shape us. He uses those things not to make us richer, not to make us stronger, but to make us more dependent on him and more holy, more holy. Every person, without exception, is going to be hardened by both blessings from God and pain. When God brings this pain or even blessings on you, you will become more hard, more hard-hearted, unless God's spirit is in you and he uses those hardships and blessings to actually soften your heart. It has been said that the same sun that hardens the clay melts the ice. And this is the difference between those who belong to God and those who do not. Not that one is guilty and the other is not because they're both guilty. And not that difficult things happen to one and not to the other. No. But that God uses those difficult and good things to melt the heart of those who belong to him. But yet it would harden the hearts of those who do not belong to him. All right. We do not need to wonder whether pain or blessing is a response from God to sin. You don't need to do that. When something bad happens, you don't need to wonder, I wonder if this is because I did something wrong. When something good happens, you don't need to wonder, I wonder if this is something, a response to something I did well. Because all pain reminds us of the coming pain of hell. And that we deserve that. And were it for, and if it wasn't for Christ who suffered hell for us, we would receive that. And all blessing reminds us of the coming pleasure of heaven and that we don't deserve it. But because Christ does, we will receive this. God's grace and his mercy and suffering are meant to lead us to repentance. Our second point in our second stanza is this. Run to God with your guilt, not to the famous or to the false prophets. Let's see this in the second stanza, 13 to 17. Let's see this. The people did not turn to him who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. So the Lord cut off Israel from Israel, head and tail, palm branch and reed in one day. The elder and the honored man is the head. The prophet who teaches lies is the tail. For those who guide this people have been leading them astray. Those who are guided by them are swallowed up. Therefore, the Lord does not rejoice over their young men, has no compassion on their fatherless and widows. For everyone is godless and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Thus far, God's word. Your only hope, Isaiah sings here, to run away from God's wrath is to run to him. And we wonder when you hear this, this, uh, this, uh, this saying, Jesus saves, you might wonder what from, what is it that Jesus saves us from? From God. He saves us from God's wrath. God's wrath toward you and your sin. And so great is his love for his bride elect, sinful as she is, 
that he would suffer in her place under the wrath of God. Christ came to save us from our sins because we are under the wrath of God. But here today and also in Israel, false prophets abound. False hopes abound. Isaiah calls these the head and tail of Israel, which need to be destroyed. On one hand, you have the famous, the people who are lifted up, the people who are, who are seen as, as better than other people, people who you look up to, the, the, the famous, the successful, the honored. And, and these people have a solution for you. You know, let's ask the wealthy and the famous what to do. The actors and the singers and the athletes and the heiresses Tell us what the purpose of life is. How are we going to deal with pain and suffering? How am I going to deal with this idea, this this feeling that I have guilt? I know I have guilt before God. What am I going to do? Let's ask the celebrities. And so what do those celebrities say? Well, I've sought after fame and fortune. You should do the same. It's not as bad as you think. Look at me. Look how good it can be. Me winning an Oscar is proof that everybody can do it. My greatest fear is not God. My greatest fear is poverty. And so I've run from it. You should too. My greatest fear is not God. It's being ignored or hated by people. And I've run from that. And so should you. Do the same. Trust us. These feelings that you have about guilt, you should just run to what we say. You know what? The solution is rejecting God's design. The solution is God's rejecting God's design about gender and sexuality and marriage and all these things. Run to us. Trust us. You should do these things. It'll solve your problems. They are the head. And God will shame them. And he will also shame all those who believe them. The tale is the false prophet. And it's ironic because the prophet of God is supposed to lead people. It's supposed to tell you where, what God says and insist that people follow. But where are the prophets on this animal? They're the tail. You know, it's a classic case of the tail wagging the dog. They are following the people and just saying things that they know the people want to hear. We see this in 2 Timothy 4. Verse 3, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And man, there's people who are willing to do it. And these prophets are inflicting pain on these people. In the same way that a lying doctor inflicts pain on a cancer, on somebody suffering with cancer. When he lies to them and says, you don't have cancer. In Revelation 9, speaking of the trumpet judgments, which God will bring on the earth in the last days. You might recall God sees a judgment and it's symbolized by horse-like locusts with human faces and, and woman's hair and crowns of gold. And they've got scorpion tails. And John says their ability to harm people comes from their tails. This is the pain that they inflict on people. John has obviously read the book of Isaiah. False prophets harm people because they help keep your heart hard. They tell people, it's okay. You're not that guilty. God doesn't hate sin. And whatever you're doing is not sin. Don't worry. You're not under God's wrath. God's not your enemy. Or maybe do those things to run from him. Here, do these good works and then you will be saved from God's 
wrath. You can run to him by making sure you have a good enough record. You can run to, you can run to, to, to all kinds of things that you could do away from your punishment. And that is what false prophets do. They will tell you that either you don't need to fear God or you can take care of it yourself if you just follow me. So leaders and influencers, false teachers, spiritual guides, they're certainly condemned. But I wondered if you also notice that the other people who are condemned are the weak people who they've taken advantage of. Did you notice that? Because weak people are also guilty. Their love of preachers offering false hope, helping them run away from God rather than to Christ. Their love of these preachers and famous people is a demonstration of their guilt. It's not an excuse for it. Even the strong and the weak are under God's judgment. The rich and the poor, the widow and the orphan. Vulnerable to the false teachers and the rich and the famous. But the reason they are is because they do not love God and fear God. The rich and the poor are guilty. Just because an idea was not yours doesn't mean you won't, you can't be condemned for it. Just because you're following what culture says is the right thing to do. Just because you're a weak person just following along. Look, this is what the majority say. The smart people say this. It doesn't mean that you will not be condemned for your actions. God says, rich and poor, everyone, head to tail, are all responsible. And that means that all need the gospel and that the gospel is offered to all. Third stanza is this. Sin does not serve you. Sin leads to destruction. Sin doesn't serve you. It leads to destruction. Let's see this in in, uh, the third stanza, which is found in 18 to 21. For wickedness burns like a fire. It consumes briars and thorns. It kindles the thickets of the forest and they roll upward in a column of smoke. Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is scorched and the people are like fuel for the fire. No one spares another. They slice meat on the right, but they are still hungry. They devour on the left, but they're not satisfied. Each devours the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh devours Ephraim. Ephraim devours Manasseh. Together they are against Judah. For all this, his anger has turned, has not turned away and his hand is outstretched still. And so here we see one of the most dangerous and widely believed lies And that is sin is for your good. This lie says that choosing between sin and righteousness is the difference between choosing what God wants and what will be good for you. This is an absolute foolish lie. The God who made the universe, who designed it and you also made the rules that govern it. Sin is not for your good. Sin is not something that you can get to serve you. You think about it like this. Eating the rat poison that's in the shed is against mom and dad's rules. But it's also bad for you. Getting in the, getting in the car with a kidnapper who says, I want to kill you, is against mom and dad's rules. But it's also bad for you. And this is what Isaiah is saying. You are fools. We are fools because we think That sin is something that is for our good that God just forbids. Sin is a way to actually serve ourselves. But he says this, sin 
is not something that serves you. You will be controlled and consumed by it. There is no safe amount of sin. Sin is not a lovely treat which God forbids from you to have. Sin always leads to destruction. Sin always leads to destruction. It becomes your master, but it also leads to destruction. And this comes in two ways, and Isaiah is going to mention both of them. It leads to destruction, first of all, by consequences, and second of all, by punishment. We see this in, the, in verse 18. For wickedness burns like a fire. It consumes briars and thorns. It kindles the thickets of the forest, and they roll up and they roll upward in a column of smoke. You see this sin is actually not for your good. It's wickedness that burns it up. It catches you in a thicket and then that thicket burns up. It catches you in a trap and then that thick, that uh, trap burns up. It makes you a slave of sin. And this is what was being said by Jesus in the passage that Caleb read for us. Anyone who practices sin is a slave to it. And so there will, be, there will be consequences for sin. You don't break God's law. You break yourself against God's law. It makes you somebody who cannot be satisfied. You have this picture of the people like treating other people like everybody's in a deli and then just people are just pieces of meat. Controls you and it turns you into this person who can't be satisfied and it turns you into somebody who just has to use everybody, not as image bearers of God, but to, in order to satisfy your desires, which are never, ever met. So sin brings destruction by consequences, ruined relationships, loss of jobs, life and health. Because God's commands are good and they seek the flourishing of life. And that is not to say that an obedient person has good jobs or health or relationships and that, a, and that a disobedient person doesn't. But he's saying, don't think that God's commands are against your good and that sin is for your good. The book of Proverbs tells you how foolish it is to think that you can hold fire close to your chest and not be burned. Sin destroys by consequences, but it also destroys by punishment from God. We can see this here in verse 19. Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is scorched. God also has wrath towards sin and wrath toward anybody who has sin. And sin leads you not only into terrible consequences, but it also leads you to destruction, to fall into the hands of a holy God. No good master would lead you in that direction. Let's go to our fourth point, our fourth stanza, if you will. Consider the end game of your sin and your chosen savior. Consider the end game of your sin and your chosen savior. And we'll read verses one to four of chapter 10. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees. And the writers who keep on writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people in their right, that widows may be their spoil and that they may make the fatherless their prey. What will you do on the day of judgment on the day of punishment? Sorry, in the ruin that will come from afar to whom will you flee to for help? And where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. 
For all this, his hand has not turned away, and his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Thus far, God's word. We can see here the first stage in denying commands and following leaders who lead us in that direction. The first stage is to think that these are for your good. These leaders, these false teachers, false church leaders even, they're going to tell you a new thing that God has not said in his word. But don't worry, it's better than what God has said. Maybe it's not against God's word, but it advances, it enhances God's word. And you're going to believe them because you think this is actually for our good. We don't want anybody holding any good for us, so we're going to follow this. But then what ends up happening is inevitably when we do this, when we reject God's design and God's word and God's commands, what we end up doing is we end up realizing, oh, this is actually, it was actually not for our good. It was for the good of the leaders. It was for their own profit, for their own image and their own wealth, for them to protect and to grow their own brand to the point where now we're just, we're just used to it. We're just used to it. This, this guy that we used to follow for theology, he's spending all day on Twitter, making sure he's tweeting and, and, and following the right people so that they follow him back and that they just grow his profile. And we're just okay with it. Well, that's just how the game is played. The good people got to do that. And the bad people got to do that. No, we, sh- we, we realize that step a is that you follow somebody and new commands, these new saviors are new ways to be right with God. Because you are convinced it's for your good. And then in the end, you just realize, actually, it's really only for the benefit of the person who is leading. We see this in the church, just as much as we see it outside the church. Nobody thinks that that celebrity who's tweeting those things about humanitarian issues is actually doing it because they care. They know they have to do this in order to raise their profile. We have to apply this not just to the world, but we have to apply this to the church. When Isaiah was talking to Judah and Israel, he wasn't just talking to two nations. He was talking to the household of God. And so for us to apply this passage, we have to apply it to ourselves. We've embraced ideas of church and leadership, ways of knowing God and operating the household of God that are foreign to God's word. And we've done so thinking it will be for our benefit. And in the end, it does lead to only corruption and a view of church leadership where we're just used to them just enhancing their own brand. We also have to look to the end game, not in this life, but the life to come. Here's this question he asks, where will you run on the day of judgment? Where are you going to hide your stuff? Don't just think about what will happen in this world. Do not just think that the bad things in this life are the only things that you have to worry about. Because there will be a day when the Lord returns or when you die. And that is the question. Where will you run? And the answer Isaiah gives is you can't run. You will not be able to run away from your punishment. You can't. Your hope cannot be that God does not punish sin. He does. Your hope can't be that God will not see your sin as worthy of wrath. Because he does. Your hope can't be that you will outrun it or pay it off, no matter what those lying scorpion prophets are saying. 
your sin will be met with the, the wrath of God full strength. There will be a day when God meets your sin with perfect wrath and zero mercy. And don't be a fool to think you, 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 you don't need to run. And don't be a fool to think that you can run. Your only hope is that you can run and hide in Christ. Because dear friends, if you trust in Jesus, then the day of your wrath was 2,000 years ago. When God placed your sin on him, and there the wrath of God fell full strength, like a, a drink pulled full, poured full strength, not mixed at all. And because he loved you, he took that for you perfectly and drained that cup dry. And so we run to him, not away. We hide ourselves in Christ. That is our only hope. I wonder if you notice as well that this, this can be a helpful way to look at what saving faith is. Because the gospel is that Christ died for sinners and rose from the dead. And that this is given to all who believe, all who have faith. This is a lovely song to help us understand what actual faith looks like. First of all, you can see in this song that you, that God hates sin and he will punish it. You can see that. You can also see in this song that you are one of those sinners and you will, you, you, you do deserve the punishment of the wrath of God. You can also see that it is the judgment, the punishment of God that you need to be saved from. But one of the things I love about this song is it also tells you that sin is not just, it's not just your punishment you need to be rescued from. Being saved means that you run because you want to be saved from sin itself. You don't just see the punishment of sin as something you want to be saved from. You see sin as an enemy. The way Isaiah is singing, it is not something that, I, that, I, that is good for me. It's not something I want to keep following or keep being controlled by. I want to be rescued not just from the punishment of sin, but also from sin itself. As we sang, let it be the double cure. Saved from wrath and make me pure. So dear friends, if you see sin this way, if you see your sin this way, that it makes you guilty before God and subject to the wrath of God, but also that you want to be rescued from sin because sin is an enemy that you hate. And then you turn to Christ and if you trust in him, not just to rescue you from your punishment, but also to reconcile you to God, then you can be sure that you are hidden with Christ in God. Colossians 3 verse 1 if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is a terrible song that Isaiah sings. This is a terrible medicine. But if it causes us to see our sin and God's wrath for what it is, so that we will not think we don't have to run, and also so that we don't think we can run, 
but instead hide ourselves in Christ, then it will be one of the most beautiful songs that you hear. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we stand on our own. We would stand before you guilty. Though people around us would tell us that we're not guilty or not that guilty or that we could save ourselves. Lord, we confess what your word teaches over and over again. That our only hope is not that we don't deserve punishment or that we could take it. Or that our Savior took it for us. Lord, I pray that you would do that work in us, that we would not be hardened by your discipline, but we would be softened by it. That it would make us love and trust you more and hate sin and see it what it truly is as the enemy of our soul. And that we would see you as for who you really are, the lover of our souls. Lord, I pray that we would hide ourselves in Christ. And while we are there, fear nothing because you are with us. I pray that you do this in Jesus' name. Amen.